You're listening to the Food Talk Show. Hi there, my name is Sue Nelson and for the next half hour or so we're going to be talking about all things food and drink. I'm joined by my fellow presenter Ollie Lloyd of Great British Chefs. Hi Ollie. Hey, we're a little bit late to the studio today. Well, yeah, rushing. It's, it's a new year, you know. 2019. I thought you would might, you know, have some New Year's resolutions and yeah, change, was, change was, your behaviour. I was at the gym. I was yeah. working out. Of course, I was, you were. You know, yeah. of course you were. Of course you were. I'm also joined, of course, by my other lovely presenter, Holly Shackleton, who is editor of Speciality Food Magazine. You haven't had breakfast, have you? You haven't. No, your your haven't. New Year's resolutions not kicking in either, are no, they? No, I know. I'm dreadful. I'm really, really sorry, Sue. I apologise. <laughs> um, yes. Well, here we go. We're going to uh, we're going to be talking today about what our predictions are for this uh, new year, uh, all the way through 2019. Could be a bit of a rocky year politically, but you know we're not going to take any notice of that. We're going to just going to talk about food and drink. And I'm so honoured. Uh, uh, we've only got one guest today. And the reason why we've only got one guest is because Asma Khan is so interesting. We're just going to devote a whole programme just to her. So welcome, Asma. Thank you very much. Some of your thoughts uh, later on 2019 would be good as well. So, um, kicking off, um, Ollie, your turn first. What do you think this New Year is going to bring in terms of food and drink? Are there any trends that you're expecting to see or changes? I I think what we've generally seen over the last sort of five years in the world of food is that there isn't sort of new years don't begin and everyone suddenly embraces a new trend i think what you see is things that were sort of nascent in in 18 will just become bigger and stronger and stronger and i think some of the trends we've certainly seen over the last two or three years have done that so i think a lot of it is actually about continuation of the same so i certainly think we're going to see more and more kind of um lean towards people eating more vegetarian and vegan dishes at home. I wouldn't say becoming vegan or vegetarian, but embracing at a broader level, a broader spectrum of stuff. Plant-based. Plant-based, exactly. Um, I think you want to continue to see the sort of the people seeking out non-dairy alternatives and non-gluten-free alternatives as being a route to kind of healthy lifestyle choices, you know? So do you think that's a default? So people are thinking, well, it's all quite complicated, but actually if I have something vegan or vegetarian... By default, in my head, that means it's healthier. Might not be actually, but 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 it's a sort of shortcut. Yes, uh, in a way. I think that's absolutely right, and I think that is a you know the sort of the health messaging is just going to keep building up, and the whole unsustainability of the food cycles and stuff. I think people are more and more, and certainly you know this year on Great British Chefs, we've kicked off a lot of campaigns that are very much focused on a more veg first style of eating. Um, so I think, you know, we're doing it, we're driving those trends and I think we're seeing it. But I also think you want to continue to see an embrace of more international cuisines and at a deeper and deeper level. So I think as, over the years, you know, obviously we've certainly seen the growth of things like Korean emerging and, and Japanese emerging, something people are cooking at home. And I think you're just going to keep seeing that growth of more interest in international styles of cooking. I think you'll see Middle Eastern continuing to kind of grow. I think you'll start to see sort of people digging deeper and we'll come on to this later, I'm sure, into, you know, regionality of Indian cooking, regionality of Chinese As cooking. opposed to just saying, oh, I'd like some Indian I'd cooking. Like some it'll Indian be, cooking. I like this particular regional. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, the only other thing which I think picks up on something we talked about with, um, with Neil Nugent from Iceland the other day, I think is that kind of growing desire to understand actually what our brand's doing and how are they processing stuff. So whether it's palm oil related whether it's about you know sort of traceability in the supply chain i think is is becoming a consumer issue and i think you know we you know the advert that iceland ran which was all about the sort of you know no no um, palm oil in their products you know which was essentially banned by um 
by the uh, regulator, you know, that sort of thing actually got a lot of traction, even, you know, because it was banned, actually, mm. in some ways. And so I think that you're going to see more and more people challenging brands to step up to the plate. What about the rise of African food? I mean, th- there's been quite a lot over, over the last few years saying there's some great stuff coming out of Nigeria and all sorts, you know, sort of, so I'm talking about sort of middle Africa as opposed yep. to northern Africa. Um, uh, do you think at last that might break through? So interesting, we did our first shoot at the back end of last year with Ikoyi, who were the who are originally Nigerian. A lot of people say they aren't Nigerian in the sense that the food there is is very a very modern take on Nigerian food, but it's the first um, Nigerian-based restaurant that won a Michelin star last year. And so we've done our first shoot with them. They're coming onto our site imminently. And actually, so I think, I think you are going to start to see more of that kind of stuff. And will we get um, nice new ingredients, do you think? Because I mean, I think the thing, the thing with Ottolenghi for me is, is well, and Persiana, actually, mm. is, is, is there's this whole... Uh, new set of ingredients that people are feeling quite comfortable about using. You know, so you've got pomegranate molasses or, or you've got zatar or, or, or whatever it is. And all of a sudden that's that's sort of become slightly no- normal to to people who are, uh, cook at home. Do you think there's a, there's a whole bunch of new agree- ingredients that might come out of Middle Africa? I, I certainly think there, there are, you know, there are always new ingredients emerging. Mm. But I think what we might well start to see a bit more of, you know, particularly with debates about, you know, UK food security and UK ability to search, to, to process their own stuff. Actually, it's more of that stuff being, you know, tried to grow here. You know, we we met last year the guys from Growing Underground. You know, we sort of start to see things like, you know, in Devon where people are growing wasabi. I think actually a lot more is about people sort of going, you know, what well, actually, how could we grow this here? Now, obviously, there are questions around our climate are best designed for certain things and not for others. But I definitely think there are opportunities. I think we will see more and more things that we've never thought of being grown here actually being grown here. Well, that's quite exciting. Now, in your world, Holly, we've obviously got farm shops, delis and all that sort of thing. What, what are you predicting for 2019 for, for, for the sort of you know people that you mix with and, and, and the, the sort of clients of those types of shops, farm shops and things? I think, um, <clears throat> sorry... I um, massively agree with Ollie, actually, that in terms of um, consumers are looking for traceability and um, just clarity regarding what they're buying. Um, and I think that has, <coughs> sorry, that's um, moved on from being kind of about ingredients lists that, you know, I- ideally people are looking for ingredients lists that are short, they can pronounce the, the words that are in that ingredients list. Um, but also in terms of packaging, obviously plastic is is a huge subject in the news at the moment and lots of independent shops are really making a move to um, to support the environment um, in a positive way. And, and I think they've got a real advantage because because they can move quickly, whereas when you're some huge supermarket chain and you've got, you know, your, your, your supply chain's quite complicated, it's going to be quite it's going to take quite a long time for them to get to hold of that whereas you're going to you're going to have a bit of a sort of competitive edge i think if you're a small operator because you can make those decisions quickly can't you and, yeah. and, and and get new supplies yeah absolutely and in terms of plastic bags i mean it's it would be a lot easier for you know an independent in devon to decide right we're not going to be um selling food in plastic bags anymore we're going to use tote bags or you know canvas bags whatever it is order a thousand of them and then they're covered for a few months. Make that Whereas, decision and do it Make the week, decision and you? just do it. Yeah. Whereas, you know, yeah. Waitrose, they've got biodegradable bags taking the place of um, plastic bags for kind of loose fruit and veg. I think that's coming into place next spring. Um, sorry, this spring. <laughs> which means that... Um, Six months' time. Yeah. So that, three months' time or something. Yeah. So that would have taken 
that would have been quite a process for them to get mm. to that stage. Mm. Um, you're also getting independents who are doing kind of serve your own. Um, it could be oats or nuts or kind of dried ingredients. Um, customers are coming in with their own containers, with their own jars or whatever yep. it is, um, to kind of serve themselves. Yeah, can you imagine if you did that in Sainsbury's? Hi, I've got my Tupperware dish here. Can you just <laughs> can I just rummage over there? I mean, they're just they're not set up. But interestingly, in mainland Europe, they're much more set up for that than we yeah. are. I mean, we're we're not we're not that good on that. And actually, you know, if you if you shop on the streets of you know of, of Delhi or, or or Bombay or Mumbai, you know, actually that's the way people actually will buy yeah. their beans and and stuff. So I think it's um. It's, it's very interesting. Will we yeah. will we see a a, a, a big break this year? Because I would say eighteen was the year that plastic became an agenda item, but is twenty nineteen the year plastic where became actually, the devil? Yeah. there wasn't any solution. But, no, but yeah. there's been no solution. The question mm. is: is nineteen the year where we will actually see see some early solutions in some of this? Mm. Well, my predictions really um, are two. I think first of all, the demise of the waiter. Or the, the demise of the waiter. Yeah, That's a very definitely. interesting one. Yeah, because I think more and more um, people are, or, or what operators are expecting is that you go in and you order yourself mm. and you cut out the because because it's a, it's a layer of expenditure that can be taken out. So we definitely see that in takeaways and and food on the go. I, th I think we'll be moving towards that in in restaurants actually. Um, we effectively what's happening is you're communicating directly with the kitchen, and I think that's going to happen. Uh, more and more um, and my second one is I'm this is a hope actually more than a prediction I like hopes yeah I want people to ask why food is so cheap and to stop asking why it's expensive I want to see that reverse actually and and you know we've got to get over in this country expecting cheap food because actually it means there's a shortcut or it means there's something nasty in there because that's the only way you can get to that price point so I really want and anybody listening please can you ask and think in your head well why is that so cheap as opposed to why is that so expensive at this mm. farmer's market or whatever so that's well, I hope. like I like it's interesting I was talking to Willie from Willie's Cacao the other yeah. day and he'd just been on a tour in um, in China and he was saying that it was literally impossible to interact out there without having a smartphone-enabled um, scanner that basically would allow you to place orders and, and basically transfer cash, which obviously you can't do if you don't have a local bank account. He said literally, you know, beggars and people were, were, were literally taking contactless. It's like every, literally everything <laughs> was like Beggars are this. taking no, no. contactless. And, and so the whole thing he was talking about oh. then was in restaurants. Oh. He said there were places where, you know, you went up, you touched your phone, oh. and, and then the, the guy gave you stuff. So even if you think in a food truck environment, right, mm -hmm. where actually you have got people who are kind of front-facing. I mean, I think it's a really interesting prediction. Do you, do you think that prediction is going to be more... Is it, do you think it's going to emerge first in, in a particular sub-segment of restaurants? Yeah, I think or? it's going to split. I think, I think you're going to get high-end restaurants where you can expect to be served and pampered and waited on. And then I think the mainstream where you're going in because you're, you're having lunch and you're at work or something, you know, that sort of more... Um, uh, I don't know what the word so is. So Pizza here, Express, right? the sort of more um, yeah. utilitarian yeah, food. Yeah, definitely. Mm. So you're, so you're mid-market. It's of, the only way they're going to survive in terms of margin, I think. But what's interesting is, and it's, it's, it's a really interesting analysis, is is it, it, is it an added value to consumers that you interact with a waiter? Um, I, I think if, you, if you've got time and you're there for social reasons, yes. I think if you're there for very perfunctory reason, you know, I've got an hour for lunch at work, but you just want to cut the time out, I think that's mm. the thing, and you're not bothered. And I think that's where it will split. Mm. Just my own thoughts. Nice. Um, I'm going to pass over to Asma. You heard it here first on Food Talk. 
<laughs> I'm so brainy. No, no, there's, there's quite a lot no, no, of no, people no, that are predicting that. It's not, yeah, yeah. not just me. It's not just you, sir. Asma, have you got some thoughts? And we're going to come on to your amazing life story in a minute. Have you got some thoughts about uh, 2019? Yes, and I think, uh, again, it's slightly aspirational. Um, I think that I, you know, 2019 should be the year of the Me Too when it comes to how females are treated in the kitchen because it hasn't happened in this country. Love that, this. That doesn't mean that it's not happening yeah. because I, I meet so many women working in some of the best kitchens who come to me with such horror tales. They will not speak. You need one person to, to, to break that silence. And I hope that this year will be that year because uh, it's, it's very, very tough if you're a woman in any kitchen. And I know, I you know, I joke about this to them, saying that you just need to make sure they recruit two more girls because there's safety in numbers. This is not how it should be. But who's going to be brave enough to speak up, Asma? Because when you do, you get absolutely pilloried. You, you know, you get, you just, I mean, it, it feels like it's not worth it because from a personal level, you, you get crucified. Yeah, uh, you I, know, and anybody that does stand up, who's the first person to do that? Well, a they are either insane because they don't understand what the consequences are on them personally. And yeah. we've seen quite a few women in 2018 standing up, and they have been at, the whole life has been absolutely. I understand and that. But this is apart. why this is why they're silent. Yeah, uh, and of course, you know, but but it's a very brave person that takes that first step. Really. But I I'm optimistic. I actually think that this is the year where it's going to happen. And my other uh, prediction is that I think that. Uh, you know, and this is because of my heritage, you can hear from my accent, uh, is that, you know, the way ethnic food uh, is presented, I hope that people learn to honour and understand uh, the symbolism, uh, the kind of the auspicious uh, nature of a lot of our food, that, you know, there are some things that you don't play around with, uh, that you have to honour, because, you know, I'm very hesitant to use the word cultural appropriation because enough has been said uh, in 2018 about it. But but those are the two things that I think are going to be interesting. And maybe because I'm deeply political, I these are the things that... I'm sort of more getting than the food, hang of that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> more, than, more than food, I think, you know, the origins of food, how you honour food, what for, food means to uh, ethnic people, it is part of our DNA. Mm, interesting. So before we, we go on to that, I mean, I know quite a lot about you because I went to a lovely event um, um, at the back end of 2018 and, and tasted some of your food, which was incredible. Um, but what really struck me was your story. So I'm just going to ask before we go to that story, have you ever met a princess before, Ollie? Yes. A proper one? Yes. Like a real one? Yes. Who? Princess Anne? Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> a member of the... Um, uh, of one of the Arab royal families. Good ah. Have you, Holly? Have you met anybody? I, I, I've met the Queen at a garden party. Have you? Twice, actually. I haven't met royalty before. Have you not? So well, I'm honoured. Asma is royalty. Oh. It's true. That yes. is true, isn't it? It's true. So would you mind just explaining and, and setting the scene for us um, about when you were a child and how you grew up and, and your family history? I'm very fortunate. I come from a royal family from my father's side and mother's side. And... Um, and culinary, the great, uh, you know, for me, I lacked out because they're, my father's from the north, my mother's from the east. And usually with arranged marriages, you marry within your own clan or uh, in, in the same area because, you know, that's how families network. But my parents got married because they were both royalty. 
with very different food uh, heritages. I've inherited both. And, um, you know, it, it just, you knew from the very, when you were a very young child, we ate differently. We ate differently and when you did these big uh, traditional feasts, our food was completely different. So let me just rewind on that. So, so in a way, if, if we look back at the history of, of, of uh, Great Britain, uh, there were often a lot of marriages, you know, in the royal family because it was strategic, you know, because yeah. they had land in France or, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. So, so were you saying that it was a strategic marriage in that respect, in a way? Yes, it was. It yeah. was a strategic thing. And, and, you know, it worked out very well for my parents. But, you know, they, uh, the food on, on the dining table, the food was divided into two lots. My mother ate a particular kind of food and my father did. The biggest difference was, you know, my mother ate rice, my father ate roti. So you, so where so where was your father from in India and where was your mother from in India? My mother was from near Calcutta and my father was from near Delhi uh, in UP. And it it basically was a, a chance to eat a very, you know, very, very distinct uh, style of food. Well, now, Calcutta food is, is... I've been to Calcutta a number of times and um, I stayed at the Tolly Gunge Club. Yes. It was a truly extraordinary experience. Um, I went to a wedding there, an Indian wedding in the Tolly Gunge Club. Uh, and it, most people don't know what Calcutta food is. Yeah. Can, how would you describe the food from Calcutta? The food from Calcutta is, you know, it's a game of two halves. I mean, because there are, there are two dif- distinct kinds of cuisine, which can be confusing if you're a, a visitor. The Bengali cuisine which is, uh, you know, local cuisine, has, you know, it's all fish, it's a very peasant style, very simple, a lot of mustard, fresh fish, a rice, and uh, vegetables cooked very simply, very quickly. Uh, then there is this other kind of cooking, which is the Mughlai food, yeah. which is the Calcutta biryani, the chicken chop, the drizala, the parathas and finni. That is my heritage. So you're from that? Yeah. I am from that. So the, there is that common factor between my parents. They're both Muslims. Right. And they both have very strong Mughlai uh, influence, which is what in the cookbook I try to explain, I, you know, in my cookbook, what is that style, mm. the essence of Mughlai cooking, which you find in both my parents' cuisine? I, I always remember that wedding. They served a, um, a biryani with the proper... Um, uh, top, the, 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 um, you know, the, the, pastry, the pastry dough yes. top. I, I think I had six portions. Calcutta biryani it's, it's, it's is, just, it's is just extreme. It was extraordinary. Calcutta biryani is incredible. Yeah. Mm. So, so just um, just explain what it was like being in your 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 household. You know, in terms of the kitchens and how you ate and and, and all that sort of thing. And then please tell us what you know. You say a, a banquet. So, so in my house, I have like I don't know ten people for Christmas. <laughs> explain to me exactly what that setting was, what it felt like, what it smelled like, what it looked like. The, I mean. I'm very fortunate. I grew up in an India where there was no internet. We had very little television. No one had mobile phones. The only way to entertain and to be entertained was eating. And no one, everybody focused on the food. And it was a wonderful time now, I realize, because people made eye contact, they discussed the dishes. And then, you know, invariably in my family, at dinner we discussed what were the leftovers, how it was going to be prepared for breakfast. And then at breakfast we discussed lunch. And you know, I Holly does that. <laughs> I really, I, really do. I was just thinking that. I, no, and the thing is, I grew up in this kind of where food was central to everything. If someone died, got married, someone got engaged, a child was born, the discussion would start off by, "What are we going to cook? What are we going to eat?" And so, the core of every happy or sad occasion has been food. And you know, to grow up in that kind of environment. 
And, you know, if my mother said, you know, some people are coming over from the family, it would be between 40 and 60 people. That's just immediate family. Not even like looking that's at cousins. Just, that's just popping around for dinner. Yeah. And, you know, my wedding had like 5,000 people uh, at my wedding. Uh, my sister had more uh, people at her wedding. Uh, it's so, you know, cooking in, in large numbers is something we do all the time. So how was that sorted in your household? You know, I mean, I presume you lived in a... Uh, well, I, I didn't start. grow up in, in the palace. Uh, oh. My my father, very interestingly, uh, decided to get a job as an engineer. And he worked for uh, his entire life with trade unions. Uh, I have a very interesting family when it comes to the politics. And my father worked in factories and was basically a negotiator on behalf of the trade unions, yep. breaking strikes. Because 70s was a very difficult time in Bengal. Uh, workers just got it was a difficult time in the UK to be honest yeah, with you <laughs> and it was a time when workers just got locked out sure and my father would stand at the gates in the scorching sun I I learned then that you know you are born you know he used to always tell me this that you are born to make a difference you could be born in a slum you're born in a palace make that big difference because this is an opportunity for you mm. to use your voice. So again, describe describe how these meals were were made and how they were cooked. Well, we because well, you, you wouldn't cook at all. Would no, you? no, no, no. I didn't know how to cook. Not. No, no. I, and all kids were kept out because it is very frantic, and there's a lot of coal and wood fires burning around in the kitchen. And now, when I think about, it, I think, oh, good God! You know, you used to have the gas cylinder next to the biryani thing. I've, health and safety. We were not big on, and uh, and it was just fun. There was just so many people, but such joy, such joy, and 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 the sense that they were the sense of occasion, every meal, because the thing is that in each meal there was a dish that was symbolic. So you know the biryani for the wedding, uh, you know when you had uh, the fish, you know when the engagement was happening because fish was very auspicious, and so you know, the big fish dish being made. Uh, whole, of course, you should not, you know, in any way cut that fish. Uh, you know, stuff the fish, the stomach with gold coins. So these little things, you know, were just uh, so every occasion was special and different. And and uh, what was the biggest banquet you've ever attended? I think the biggest one was my my sister's wedding. Uh, I'd never seen so many people, and then they did this absolutely spectacular dish, which uh, is done in very few of our families, where they. They kind of uh, barbecue an entire goat, which they stuff with chicken. The chicken is stuffed with rice and it's got an egg inside it. And it's just, the scusi is, oh my God, it's fascinating to watch it. And one day, my dream is to replicate this in London. Right, okay. Now, I happen to know that you're actually quite a naughty girl. You didn't really do what you were supposed to do as a princess, did you? Not really. No, and, and this is why I didn't marry a prince, because I was... They don't, they don't let you, had they? No, it wasn't that. No one wanted to marry me. Mm. I would have married some guy if he had wanted to marry me. Because, you know, when you're that young, you don't think that you have rights as a girl. Uh, but no one wanted to marry me because, uh, you know, it's all arranged marriages. But because I was a bit wild and played cricket the whole day with the street children on the streets, I was seen by everybody. Of course, this is before, you know, photographs. I mean, then I would have been, like, dead. Mm. But people would claim that they saw me. But because they were never sure, but my reputation had been destroyed by people talking about the fact that I played cricket on the streets, I climbed uh, trees and I stole fruits from the neighbours, uh, which makes sense. The neighbours' trees had more fruits than 
hours. So, you know, they won't miss a few <laughs> yes, if I you took them. I don't think we'll condone that. But but eventually you did have an arranged marriage. And yes. weren't you lucky? Because he's a pretty good guy. Yeah, I had an arranged marriage. And, you know, he is the classic suitable boy. My father liked him a lot. Uh, Oxbridge educated, you know, came first in economics at Oxford. Very educated, very, very liberal. Was least bothered about what I did. And, you know, similar politics to my father. And, you know, even though not royal family in any way, my father was hugely relieved because he knew <laughs> that my husband was not going to put any limitations on me yeah. and would let me free. Yeah, I mean, um, I think my parents had trouble getting rid of me. So they put a sign in the garden saying, last girl before the M20. And that did it. <laughs> um, so, so you meet this guy and then, lo and behold, you're having to move uh, out into the UK. That's a bit of a shock for you. Yeah, I'm, I think I hadn't really thought of this thing uh, a lot. And, you know, this is, of course, you know, again, 28 years ago, you, we didn't see a lot of film or, you know, I saw, you know, I saw London on film, but I didn't kind of really understand. I didn't understand how cold it was. <laughs> and I moved to Cambridge because that's where my husband was teaching at the university uh, in January, where the river froze. And what I'd never, I'd seen pictures of trees with no leaves. I come from Calcutta, where there is this abundance of greenery. And I used to look at the tree and I used to feel, this is me. I'm stripped of everything that is me, that is warm, that is celebrates life. I'm this lifeless tree because it was so cold and I couldn't cook. And my husband was a terrible cook and he never ate with me. So from the time that I never ate a single meal alone, Alone, as in like at least 20 people in every meal, minimum. I ate every meal alone. That was really hard because mm. my husband was graduate tutor and spent that entire year eating all his meals in college because he had, you know, to see students. But also you couldn't cook, so he probably didn't want to come home. <laughs> yeah, and no, and the thing is that, you know, he cooked mm. for me and he left food. But like, he's not skilled. He's a great economist, but he's a rubbish cook. Yeah, And he, you know, the rice he used to make I really could glue myself on the ceiling with it. So sticky. I mean, I was like, I I come from the land of biryani. This guy was making this completely sticky rice. Obviously, he didn't know. But he told my parents that, you know, oh, I don't worry. I don't believe in these roles that a woman cooks and a man. At that time, it sounded very good. The reality was that he's a bad cook and he could only make one thing. So, so... How did you get yourself out of that? I mean, you're sitting, you're, you're very lonely. It's blooming freezing. Yeah. You're in Cambridge, never been there before. Yeah. Uh, you decided that f because food is, has been such a, a central part of your life, even though you couldn't cook, there's a, there is only one solution and that is to start cooking, isn't it, really? I had to cook so that I could breathe, mm. so I could feel complete. Food as an immigrant uh, is so important because this is the one thing that, takes us home because you can't change things around and you know of course I you know left voluntarily happily you know to get married to a person who I'd met but a lot of immigrants who are here are here for different reasons and those who travel those who go through a terrible journey you leave behind everything and you know there is no there's no door that takes you back so what you can do is that you can bring the aromas of that home that you will never go back to in your space. And I, this is how I, I survived. And this is how I, I went home. 
And then I also realized that, you know, this is this has to be more than just about me. But it is a way to meet people, isn't it? Food, yes. Sharing food. Yes. And yeah. so I this, I started hosting these uh, parties. Oh, my husband isn't. He hated that. He'd come back and find the house full of people because I would never tell him. Because uh, I didn't even know when he'd come back. You know, he just was this busy academic who walked in and out. A stranger for me then was trying to make friends with this person who I didn't know. So I thought, you know, this is my strength. I'm going to make friends with, over food with people. And I saw that same look in people's eyes when they ate my food that I yearned for because I knew I'd taken them home too. Mm. Um, the, this is quite a pop-up sort of, sort of, I don't know, revolution now, isn't it, Ollie? But actually pop-ups then were just quite unusual, I would, I would, I would suggest. Especially in Cambridge. I yeah, I can't imagine there was a huge scene of, of pop-ups in sort of this is nineteen this is uh, late nineties late, late early nineties in 90s. fact early and 90s. I so I used to do this uh, you know I never charged anybody I would just invite people can you and, imagine how lucky you'd be and so also the thing is that my husband told me to stay away from all his students so who, how else would I meet anybody I was not a student at that time I was didn't know anyone so I would meet people and tell them you know I can make korma and I can make nihari. Like the Pied Piper of Hamlin, I had people just following me home. But I was so lonely. I left everything, and this eating alone was devastating mm. because that I found really hard. Uh, because of the kind of family I came from, and because for me food was always about breaking bread together, this isolated you know, existence of eating alone was, you know, I felt, you know, I felt, you know, stripped, raw, incomplete and hungry. <laughs> no hungry. meal, no meal <laughs> filled me up. No meal left me satisfied that mm. I felt nourished. I was starving. So if we can, if we can sort of fast forward a bit, um, th these, you know, became very, very successful. And then you decided to um, found... Darjeeling Express, yes. have I got that right? Yeah. Yes. And and did you do that in London or in Cambridge? In London. Because so we had moved to London. That's where I studied law and yeah. I'd had the two kids. And I started Darjeeling Express the day I passed my PhD viva because I didn't want to make that big step. Uh, you wanted to, some security behind you. So no, and also I didn't want to take on my husband and family at that point who was so proud. I was the first girl who went to college I studied law, I did a PhD. My father was telling the whole world, my, doc my daughter is a doctor. And I knew the reaction when I told them, I'm not going to teach. I'm not going to be the researcher in the House of Lords, which is what everyone thought I was going to be. And I want to cook. It was a huge disgrace because for the, my family, uh, the girls get married very young and all they can do is cook. So how can how can that... How does that be a disgrace? I mean, because here now no, but, I would but, say chefs have a sort of status in but a way. Not in, but I think it's a very interesting thing. Is so, so my wife is Sri Lankan, as you know. Um, I lived in India and in, and um, the, the, the chairman of Great British Chefs is, is Indian from Delhi. And, um, and he talks about, you know, he, the word chef is actually almost, is actually cook. Yes. And cook implies actually domestic staff. And so there is a kind of, a, it, it's, it's almost a different, it's a, it's a serving class rather than a creative class. Mm. So I think the idea that chefs are on the same level as artists is a very European concept that is own that I mean you know there's a history to it. 
but but there's also a, there's also the flip of that, which is is you know the idea of chef is also stuck in domesticity and, and a subservient class to mm. the ruling class, and so I think there is a, there's a, I think particularly I don't think in a Sri Lankan I'll say Sri Lankan rather than Indian a Sri Lankan parent would be as you know they want their children to be doctors and academics yeah. and lawyers Dentist, and lawyer, dentists yeah, and you know yeah. it's the accountants accounts classic a profession a profession a, yeah. go, a good sort i mean it's it's a, yeah no cook is not a good thing no it's not a good thing and the thing is that you know it is akin to manual labor is there actually a word so is the word in hindi is there a word between between the actual word between chef and cook? Are there two different words, or is no. there only one word? No, no there's, there's one word. There's one word. So you you have you know language differences. So yeah. you know there's a bavarchi and in Urdu because I'm Muslim, we yeah. say khansama, but it is still it it's is one a, word. It's it one is, word. It's one yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. And there's no there's no honor in being yeah. a, a cook, and now things have changed because if you're on TV, people like you, and everyone's obsessed with Master Chef Australia. Obsessed in yeah, India. It's the biggest one. And and so now, again, my frustration is there is an obsession with foams and steam and and all kinds of Western techniques of 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 serving food, and this is just like it's a, such a huge hit for us. Yeah, it's an illusion, all that stuff. Yeah. So, so tell us about Darjeeling Express. Um, I know it's going quite well at the moment, but but what sort of things were you serving when you set it up? I served the food I wanted to eat, and. It's tough with the prices that I need to pay for my service charge and my rent. I price it with what is comfortable for me. I don't want, this is what I'd pay for my own food. I want people like me, like me in 20 years ago. I never had a restaurant I could walk into. I see people at the pass when I watch. I go out and talk to them. Weep when they eat. I know where they are coming from. Mm. I understand completely because I'm feeding them something that they've forgotten. They probably sat in somewhere because you know, we, we eat by hand. They, at, when they ate something like this, they were sitting in someone's lap and that person invariably, probably a mother, was feeding them. And this is so, for me, such a big thing. I don't want to be you know, rich or famous. I, I, want, I want to change that emptiness that I remember that feeling of being a stripped tree, mm. lost and shorn of everything. For me, food is that. That is that bridge. I connect to that person. And they don't have to be Asian to understand that what this food is. But, but you didn't really particularly market that or do anything. And yet, by 2015, Evening Standard voted you as one of the 15 best London restaurants. Is that just word of mouth? It is word of mouth. Mm. And uh, no, I've, I've never used any PR or marketing. I'm very low-key when it comes to writing about this because I think that, you know, more than, you know, uh, anything that anyone might write in print or listen to me, they need to eat my food. The food talks to them and that's enough. I don't need to that's, go that, down the market. That says room. everything. Yeah, yeah. You say that, however, but you've been voted Entrepreneur of the Year, you've been voted all sorts of other things and you've got a debut cookbook, which I have a copy of, thank you very much, which I uh, I got last time I saw you. I mean, it's called Asma's Indian Kitchen. And what's really interesting about that is about telling the story of where that food comes yeah. from and what that, that the basis of that food is. Um, so, so why do a cookbook? Just because, I bet you get asked a lot, don't you? How do I make this? Uh, yes, I used to get asked a lot. And the thing is that uh, the people, I mean, the group that have bought my cookbook the most are my own family because all the recipes are unwritten. And 
we learn by like oral history, all the dishes. It was incredibly difficult for me to write my first recipe. I wept and I cried and I burnt the food twice. <laughs> and then I asked my kid just to measure everything that I was picking up by hand. Because I don't know how to use a teaspoon. Uh, and I don't know, there's no weighing scale. But so he weighed and measured everything. He took a video and he told me, this is what you did. I did my first recipe like that and I did all the others. And they're spot on. If I have to think, I cannot cook. You sort of choke in a way if you, if you, if you suddenly interrupt that process. Yeah, you know, I can't. I, I burnt the food and like, you know, this is something I'd made in my sleep and I couldn't do it because I was trying to figure out what am I using. I can't because I just stand there and it's like, you know, a Beatles song, you know, every word. You stand there and the song is playing and the song finishes and the food is done. That's how I cook. But the cookbook is, you know, everyone has cooked from it in my family. But even people who have never cooked this food are all very happy because it works. It works because I've, te- I've written it in two ways. I give you all the measurements, but I, I am there. My voice is there throughout. I'm holding your hand and telling you, look for this, look for that, taste this, smell this. Makes you want to buy the book, doesn't it? Definitely, definitely. We should look at it for our cookbook club. You should. So we have a we have a cookbook club where every month a community of about four and a half thousand people cook from one book, and um, they're bonkers. And they um, they we go through every single. They literally go through every single recipe in, and they then share it all on Facebook. We've done Yotam Simple. We've done the Great British Chef's Cookbook. We've done Marcus Waring's um, uh, classics. We've done um, Chantel Nicholson's plant based eatings. We do lots of different ones. And uh, yeah, we we should definitely look at it. It'd be great. It's, it's it's a it's a book that is. I mean, for people who they will understand a cuisine which they've not understood once they could because I explain the roots of the food. Mm. So, and uh, one other thing that that you have done is you've got an all women team of housewives who run yeah. the kitchen at Darjeeling Express, yeah. and that's a very deliberate move by you. Yes, because I I need to work with people who understand the way I cook. And someone who learned production line cooking in a Taj and Oberoi school, because none of these boys would have been allowed into the kitchen because it would have been such a disgrace for the family to have your young son hovering around. People would be so anxious. This see it as abnormal. So the people who hung around the kitchen are girls. In Asian families, boys don't hang around kitchens. So they would not know how the food is cooked. They learned this in chef school. Otherwise, how are how do Indian restaurants have this long menu? Nothing is fresh. We have five things on our menu. If we're bloody lucky, we have four. You know, and this is like, you know, our aspiration is to make five things. We don't even make it. And people come in are so tolerant. Like, oh, we didn't make the kofta today. You think if I come back at night, it'll be ready? Maybe not. Okay, fine. I'll come tomorrow. And it is just wonderful. People are tolerant because they can see us cooking. We're making it while they're sitting there. And, you know, my freezer, I have a small freezer full of ice cream. That's it. Which ice cream which I eat. Uh, that's, you know, we don't have freeze anything. So all these lovely ladies arrive uh, in the morning and they, they start chopping, cooking. And no, that's we cook, what you have that day. No, we cook because we all cook like this. Every time someone got married in the village, we all contributed and cooked. They all come, you know, they don't come from the background I do. But actually, we're all the same. You know, whether you're poor or you're rich, you have a limited amount of resources, you try to get the most out of it. You try to make sure that you deliver. You honor your guest. You make sure it's impressive. That is the common thing. I never see my royal heritage and the fact that many of them did grow up in great deprivation, the women who work for me, 
and, you know, dealt with lots of abuse and all the... I didn't go through all of that, but I completely see myself in them. Yeah, absolutely. Now, just to finish off uh, the programme, I think it's airing in a, in a week or two. You will be the first ever British chef to feature in Netflix. Yes, in Chef. Uh, and that's the uh, Emmy-nominated Chef's Table. How scary was that? Actually, it wasn't. Really? And yeah, I... The camera I, right in your face for hours on end. Yeah, it, the it, first day was a bit... <laughs> Awkward. It, it, it's a great program. Just to give yeah. a quick, so the, what, this is the, just to context this. So this is an amazing program that was set up probably about two or three years ago, run by quite a young production team, and they go out to tell the story of individual chefs, um, and they go out there and they try and dig deep into it. And they've covered amazing chefs all around the world, ranging to sort of Buddhist monks who have three Michelin stars, through to kind of crazy Argentinian guys who throw entire hunks of meat. Uh, on open fires and drink two litres of red wine during during one sitting. Um, so so that's the context of it. It's a, it's a series you should absolutely watch on Netflix. But so tell us about so your tell us about just, your just before we do that. You're a fan. Oh, Holly. I'm, I'm such a fan. It's so so good. And to be honest, hearing this story is so brought me back be on to it. it. I'm so excited. Yeah, definitely yeah. tuning in. It was uh, I I wasn't sure what to expect. I've never done film before or TV, so they rocked up and they were just. But in the first day, I realized that they cared as much about the food as me. They understood. They wanted to get into literally the kind of sub my soul and understand hear, what I was cooking. Yeah. Then they all faded. You know, 15 people filming me didn't matter because they were just in my breath trying to understand what I was making. And it's a very different, I've seen the director's cut. It's a very different kind of episode because it's an episode that celebrates women, but celebrates the home cook, celebrates, you know, why women need to be with women and support each other. And yes, it does tell the story. I go back to my palace in the monsoons where the, my fortress is in ruins, so there's no roof. Uh, filming that was just like, oh my God, crazy. You know, we had the most adventurous time, you know, trying to get onto railways. Uh, 15 people with camera on an unreserved railway. If you've seen any pictures of Indian railways, and there were goats in there as well. Uh, of course. Of course uh, yeah, yeah, no, it was hysterical. Of course, when you see the film, you think, just see me. You don't see like 200 people and seven goats pressed on the other side yeah. so that they wouldn't come into the thing. But it was just amazing. And then, you know, when they left, I did cry a lot. I cried for an hour because I was just so relieved that all these people left. They you know, captured my story. They understood what you were trying to say. They hadn't misinterpreted no, they it or, haven't. And, and or taken one slice of it out of context. And it, it, I never thought when I saw the way that they talked to me and what they were trying to understand, I wasn't worried because, you know, my initial reaction was a bit very that I thought, oh God, you know, are they going to play this exotic, you know, uh, token brown face, which is always an issue, mm. uh, you know, and picking me as the first British chef to be featured worried me a bit because but no they it was just about food we do biryani and we celebrate what is beautiful about and it's very respectful i mean you know you take massive obertura who did one of the first episodes and who i met and interviewed a while ago and you know they've done an amazing job i think of telling massimo's story they they've done the same with all the other chefs and i don't i think what's lovely about chef's table is is that it's not a sensationalist program trying to kind of like uncover the problem or have a moment of drama. It tries to, I think, very respectfully tell a 
chef's story of their relationship to food and their relationship to place often, which I think, again, is one of the important things that often in all the episodes, it is about that that very special relationship between a human and land and and, and the produce of, of either their home or that area. And it's, I mean, I'm very excited to see it. And I yeah. it's actually, for me, uh, I mean, I hope that people see it and see it as my love letter to London. This city has given me shelter. The city has allowed me to sow the seeds of a business which is now Darjeeling Express. And, and, and many other people too. And it is the most amazing place to grow up for my kids. And I'm so grateful that I can celebrate who I am and I'm free. And, you know, we, I hope that, you know, and the biggest thing is when we shot Chef's Table, we were filming all over London. You cannot imagine the kit, all branded as Chef's Table. London people took pictures, but not a single person posted because they promised me, we'll let this be your moment. Strangers. It's this very, is when you that's, realize that's that London, very respectful. This is when you realize London is the greatest city in the world. You know, it, yeah. you know, your one moment in social media thing that, oh, do you know they're filming Chef's Table at Kingley Court? No. They took pictures. There were huge notices, legal notices saying, this is, we're filming Chef's Table. You know, if you don't want to be, you know, filmed, avoid this area. Nothing. No one talked about it till Chef's Table made the announcement. Mm. And this is what London is so wonderful that they understand. And this is an immigrant story that they, they were all like, you know, we went to Para Market. So we went everywhere. Everyone knew what we were doing. No one well, talked. I mean, that, that's a very positive thing um, to, to start off our first programme in 2019. A lot of turmoil in 2018. Maybe that might give us some, some hope for this coming year. I know you're a bit depressed about the current state. Oh, we've got New Year, New Year. Let's 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 see new if we year, can take it somewhere good. Yeah. You know. Okay. Well, um, a fantastic program. I think you agree, Holly. Have you got any final comments? Just nice to be here and listen to us. I think we're all Just, going to the restaurant soon, aren't we? We're definitely going to the restaurant. Yes, I'll see you there later. Um, oh, she, she's hungry. Very hungry. But um, I'm just, I'm looking forward to the rest of 2019. I think the seeds have been sown in terms of um, respect for food, um, respect for the people making it, the industry as a whole, environment, everything, I think. Lots to be optimistic about. Yeah. Mm. Well, thank you, um, Asma Khan, for joining us so much. Thank you. We could talk for hours, really. <laughs> thank, <laughs> thank you very much. For um, please bring some food next time. I've tasted it, actually, Ollie. <laughs> See? You just have to go to um, Darjeeling Express. I will. That's that's where you need to go. That's where you need to go. So you've been listening to the Food Talk Show. Um, As you know, we're syndicated to radio stations across the UK and further afield, as well as being available on Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, iTunes and the podcast app on your phone. Thank you to my fellow presenters, Ollie Lloyd. Thanks, Ollie. You're welcome. I'm characteristically quiet. You're just no, listening, no, no, I'm just, I, I absorbing listen, I, the stories. I, you know, as you know, India is one of the countries that I, I love to many times and love. So it's yeah. always wonderful to hear a, a food story from India. And thank you very much, Holly Shackleton of thank Speciality you. Food Magazine. Thanks for having me. If you want to recommend any future guests, you can have real trouble getting somebody as good as Asma Khan. But you know, if you do, you know anybody amazing like Asma, please get in touch uh, with us via Twitter on at Food Talk Show. And if you want to listen to any of our hundreds of podcasts, go to foodtalk.co.uk or, of course, via the Great British Chef's amazing website. I hope you have a good week and uh, uh, all good luck for 2019. Bye.